Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Language. Today I'm talking to Peter Suren about his book, From Wolf to Montague, Explorations in the Theory of Language, in which he discusses and defends his views on the relation between language and cognition, and the role of linguists and linguistics in elucidating it. In doing so, he navigates a unique and fascinating path between conflicting bodies of opinion, and has much to say that will challenge and provoke linguists of all schools of thought. I'm delighted to welcome Peter Suren to talk about his book, From Wolf to Montague, Explorations in the Theory of Language, in which he discusses a range of issues around the relations between language, the mind, and the world. Peter, how did this book come into being? Well, um, that's difficult to say. I had a number of papers lying around which hadn't been published, and I thought it would be nice to put them together in a book. And so I write a few other papers to make um, a coherent whole of the book, and I rewrote the papers that I had. And so in the end, uh, I had a book. The book has quite a coherence to it. It feels like a a very... um clear and coherent position statement. Is that how you see it? Uh, Yes, it is very much a statement of my position in the whole field of language studies. I criticize many other approaches and I formulate my own position um, somewhere in the middle of all that many-dimensional space that linguistic studies go about in these days. And I'd uh, like to talk about your position vis-a-vis those positions. But before I do, I'd like to ask about the opening chapter where you motivate and and introduce and discuss this notion of settling as an explanatory principle for language. Um, Could you outline what that means and what it implies? Yes, yes. Uh, That's the first chapter. That is a very central point of linguistic theory, which has so far received almost no attention. I see the ontological status of a language as um, something in the realm of uh, social reality. Um, We have physical reality, we have all sorts of mental realities, and we have uh, a large number of social realities. Every human group has a social reality defining what's good behavior, what's bad behavior, what is polite, what is impolite, how you greet each other, etc. And um, that sort of knowledge or competence is common to all integrated members of the group. Well, language, that's where language belongs. Language is part of social reality, first and foremost. In order to be that, it has to be part of mental reality, because you cannot be a member of a group until you have integrated all the group norms into your own mind. And the mind itself um, is not an autonomous ontological level. It depends on a physical substrate, even though we know very little about that. So... um, Um, Language belongs in the realm of social reality. How does social reality come about? 
I don't think anybody knows, and I don't know of any specific study in that area. But um, it is a fact that sometimes certain forms of behavior catch on in a group, and everybody then considers that the sort of standard thing to do. There's a point at which um, a certain form of behavior becomes generally accepted, and that is what I call settling. A language settles whenever particular ways of expressing thoughts and intents um, become socially acceptable in a group. And uh, as we know, every um, group of humans, especially if it is of a certain complexity, is subdivided into many overlapping subgroups. The same with language. We have all sorts of different manifestations of the same language, sometimes mixed with another language. Uh, we have a social register of how we speak and write, and we have um, a whole lot of dialectal registers, and they all they're all mixed up according to certain formulas. And that is typical for social reality because we live not in one group, but especially in our Western societies, we live in a complex conglomerate of overlapping groups. And as I said, that's what you find in language. And that's how language settles. That's what I call settling. When language, when certain forms of expressions become accepted in a community or sub-community. Does that answer your question? Yes, very well. Um, I was going to ask, in, in follow-up to that, uh, you, you criticise um, Chomsky in various, uh, various aspects of his approach. One that you don't, I think, explicitly point to is this assumption, which I think is at the beginning of aspects, about the uniformity of the language community. But it sounds like this is, this is very much uh, a rebuttal of that as a, as a concept, isn't it? Uh, you could take it to be like that. I don't, actually. I am not so disturbed by Chomsky's idealization of a totally homogeneous language community with only one language form. What does disturb me in Chomsky's uh, theorizing is that he refuses to accept the point that I have just made, the settling and the internal variability of competence. No speaker in any complex Western society has only one register. We have a number of different registers, certainly in our native language. And Chomsky um, trivializes that point, or he just refuses to accept it. He calls it unimportant and not worthy of further study. And that is what I criticize, but he is free to idealize when he wants to describe a particular form of um, a language and write a grammar about it and says, well, this is my idealized form of homogeneous English. Well, he's welcome to me, but he should know that that description must be integrated into a much wider description describing the uh, sociolinguistic variability within the territory of English. Does that answer your question? Yes, again. Um, so essentially, it sounds, it sounds to me as though the points that you're making are essentially so similar to those that motivate studies in, in sociolinguistics and to some extent in sociology, but from a linguistic point of view, you want to 
do very different things with those insights than sociolinguists tend to want to uh, do? Well, yes. I, uh, I think there is an important and central theoretical question as to what native speakers' competence looks like. That native speakers' competence is not homogeneous. It is uh, variable and adapts itself to the circumstances. Uh, so far, theoretical linguistics has, in, in, in none of its uh, forms in which it is manifested today, theoretical linguistics has so far not provided an answer as to the question of how this internal variable competence is structured. How do the variations ref uh, relate to each other? How are they organized in the total set of rules that define a language? And I think that is an important question that needs attention. I wrote an article about that as long ago as 1981 in Linguistische Berichte. But as usual, this article had no response in the linguistic world because probably the question I was posing was too difficult. Mm -hmm. um, you note that settling seems to be a very powerful explanatory principle. Um, am I right in saying that your view is that from a methodological standpoint, we should appeal to it rather sparingly as an explanation for linguistic phenomena? Yes, I say that sometimes. But what I mean by that is uh, I say that settling is a last resort. In, I say that in chapter one. What I mean by that is that, first of all, we um, have to see if there is rule-governed behavior. But if we can't find that, if there are just stupid exceptions, as there are many in every language, then all we can say in the end is, well, there is no rule. This is just idiosyncratic settling. I would call that idiosyncratic settling. And that is, theoretically speaking, a last resort. Let me see if I can think of an example. Well, uh, I gave an example from English in the book, but some uh, reader pointed out to me that it wasn't a very good example. I will give it nevertheless. In English, you say um, you're married to someone and not married with. But in uh, all other languages that I know, and that's about 10 or 12, um, you are married with someone. Why does English say you're married to someone? And um, you could be married with five children, um, but that doesn't mean that you are polygamous with five um, individuals under age. It means that you and your wife have five children together. But you cannot say, I married with Jeffrey, if Jeffrey is your son. Those things are just idiosyncratic, and they are idiosyncratic for English. Then you can say how come and why, and then the ultimate response, if you find no rule, no regularity, no tendency, is, well, that's the will of the people, idiosyncratic settling. That's the way the English people have wanted it, and that's the way it is. Presumably, in applying the notion of settling um, quite conservatively, which, as you say, is very clearly methodologically motivated, we do have this danger that uh, phenomena which really are due to settling are being overanalyzed. Do you feel that that's something that happens? Overanalysis, well, I wouldn't put that number one of my list of objections to linguistic practice nowadays. 
No, I think that uh, when I look through articles in journals, usually authors of articles engage in problems that are real problems and they try to analyze them. And no, I wouldn't say that over-analysis is a defect of present-day linguistics, no. Do you feel that settling is doomed always to be a last resort? Or do you feel that if we understood it better, we would be able to make use of it in a more principled way? Uh, Idiosyncratic settling. Um, I neglected to add that um, predicate, that qualification, in the book, in the text of the book. But... um, Settling as a general phenomenon is what I said before. The fact that something, some form of behavior, is considered the norm in a society. Settling as a last resort is when you have no other explanation than just say, well, this particular case is just how people have decided to do things. Um, I think that in uh, theoretical linguistics, there is too little attention for idiosyncratic settling. People call them exceptions, but the literature on exceptions is scarce and, in in my eyes, unsatisfactory. Um, I think it ought to be recognized that people sometimes fall back onto specific idioms, specific ways of saying things, and there is nothing further to it. But you can only say that if you have explored all other possibilities. Yes, indeed. And that's a theme that we'll we'll come to because that's something you, you talk about later in the book methodologically. Preferatory to that, in the in the following chapter you discuss and contrast linguistic relativism and Wolfianism. Yes. Um, a distinction that in itself is, is widely overlooked, would it be fair to say? Um, Yes, um, that's right. I criticize the Wolfian literature on confusing relativism with Wolfianism. Yes, Wolfianism in its pure forms is the hypothesis that um, thought is shaped by language. In the strong form, it says that all thought is shaped by language, thought is entirely shaped by language, is determined by language, but in its more common, weaker form, Wolfianism says thought is at least partly shaped by language. And that is where I uh, intend to, where I want to argue that to the extent that thought is shaped by language, it's shallow thought, shallow business. Real thought is not shaped by language, but is independent of language. That's my thesis. Relativism is something else. Relativism says that languages can vary without limit. Um, There is no universal constraint on the form a language can take. And that is a different hypothesis, a different thesis, if you like, because you can be a Wolfian and a non-relativist. You can be a Wolfian and a relativist, as most of them are, for historical reasons. You can be a non-Wolfian and a relativist and a non-Wolfian and a non-relativist. And all forms of linguist of approach of these four different approaches actually exist. So it's clearly wrong to identify relativism with Wolfianism. They're independent of each other. You can combine them and you can separate them. 
That's what I maintain. And I haven't seen any argument that shows that I'm wrong so far. No, no, quite. Um, a theme, you've mentioned the historical context for that conflation. Um, a theme that recurs throughout your book is uh, that there exists what you call on page 32 a wider ideological anti-formalist complex that embraces both Wolfianism and linguistic relativism. And you're very uh, eloquent in opposition to that. Could I ask you to elaborate your position on it? On the anti-formalism tendency in, yes. in certain quarters of linguistics, yes. Uh, that, I think, is historically determined. There are groups, large groups of linguists who hate any text, any linguistic text that contains any symbol outside the ordinary alphabet. So if you come with any kind of stylized formula to either describe or analyze a phenomenon, they balk um, because everything has to be said in ordinary language in terms of your experience as a native speaker or as a speaker of a human language. Uh, I think that is unscientific, that is methodologically unsound. Every precise analysis has at least the right to resort to formulaic expression, provided, of course, all the terms of you, in your formula are well-defined, both formally and empirically. Um, they balk twice. If, you, if you, you use something which in their eyes is too abstract, so, um, for example, a, a very simple logical formula to describe the meaning of a sentence or a word is considered abstract and out of bounds. I don't see why. Our experiences, which we express through ordinary natural language, are object of research, not the explanatory means of research, of questions. We... Um, uh, our experience is there, and the question is, how come? And you cannot use them to explain things in terms of themselves. I don't think you can say this is controversial, because most language, linguists will pay lip service to what I've just said. But in practice, you find that there is this very strong aversion to uh, abstract formalisms and I'm against that I think we should accept that but we shouldn't over formalize we shouldn't formalize to the extent that we lose contact with empirical reality that unfortunately also happens so I try to steer a middle course and some areas of linguistics are just or have so far not been open to formalization or to abstract analysis. Well, we must live with that and see if perhaps in the future there will be, or perhaps um, they cannot be in principle. But we should maximize abstract description and analysis, and we should maximize the drawing up of a system that explains the, the data, that explains the evidence. Uh, that's my point of view, and I defend that in the book. I'm very interested to hear, um, to see if anybody um, um, objects to that, and I would like to see the arguments, then we can start a discussion. You're noted in your work for a degree of intellectual independence from these 
competing and conflicting bodies of thought. Absolutely. <laughs> do you find people are receptive to that independence, or do you find that they're sometimes keen to defend, so to speak, a party line? Depends very much uh, who you meet, uh, but most people, uh, most linguists um, in the field of linguistics tend to uh, hide behind the party line, and they hate to uh, follow me in my independent course through the jungle, um, and that that is a fact of experience. So I'm totally independent, that's quite true. And I'm proud to be that, but it also means I have very few followers. But there are quite a lot of people who read what I write with interest and are, their mind is, is triggered by, by what I write. So I hope that in the end it'll have some effect. But my attitude, my independent attitude, is not conducive to building up um, um, a group of followers. In Chapter 3, you identify and discuss some of the potential constituent parts of a general theory of human language. And there, it's my impression that you are somewhat more cautious and much less keen to make sweeping claims than, than a lot of people in the literature. Absolutely. And that's, I sense it's because you're, you're engaging very seriously with those with potential difficulties, potential exceptions that require an explanation. Yes, yes. Um, chapter 3 is about the possibility of formulating universals of language. Uh, relativism or a universal theory is what it's called. And I, I am uh, reluctant to say very positive things in that chapter, um, for the simple reason that the trend of thought that I belong to, I'm a universalist. I'm not a particularist, a relativist um, in the study of language. I do believe that human language is rather strongly bound by general principles of a non-trivial and potentially highly interesting nature. But given that, we must uh, admit that there is precious little in the way of actual theory that has so far been proposed and validated by the linguistic community. Um, we can say in general terms, yes, there are constraints, but if you ask me or any other linguist, okay, tell me what constraints and how do they hang together? How do they relate to each other? in a total picture of universal constraints, then the answer has to be minimal. We, we know very little about that. So it's little more than a statement of principle. And I find that disappointing. And, um, and that is why I am very tentative in my formulations. But I do believe that there are, there must be, such non-trivial universal constraints on human languages. Does that make sense? Yes, very much so. Um, would it be fair to say that you, you feel that given our state of knowledge about language, that this kind of approach is more justifiable than, than seeking after a grand unifying theory? Well, perhaps both. Of course, you can 
try and come up with what you call a grand unifying theory, but you can only do so with reason if you have a whole lot of sometimes very small empirical data to shore up your position. So you have to have detailed knowledge of particular languages um, and uh, pick out what seems to you to be probably relevant to a universal constraint, try and formulate that constraint, and then go about um, uh, the world and see if that constraint is corroborated in all other languages that you can put your hands on. Um, That's not simple, but I think that is a good strategy. Chomsky, in a, an argument, which I consider a rather silly argument recently, has maintained that you don't have to look at the facts of individual languages, but that there are two kinds of linguistics, the descriptive linguistics, where you describe all facts of languages, and the, grand, the grandiose view linguistics, where you formulate Um, uh, general principles of an almost metaphysical nature. Well, I think that is very silly because the latter part of linguistics will then have lost all contact with the actual reality on the ground. You need to shore up any universal statement with data and you need to be open to possible counterexamples. If they are found, that's disappointing. You may reformulate your constraint, but that's it. And uh, Chomsky professes that he hopes for counterexamples, which I think, again, is very silly because no scientist hopes for counterexamples. But um, uh, you have to accept them if they are there, and you have to accept the consequences. This, I think, is the most difficult part of linguistics, a universal theory of language in a serious sense, and it hasn't started yet. That is my view of the situation. It's rather pessimistic. To come back to Chomsky's so-called hope for counterexamples, that's what he said, has said repeatedly for the past 20 years. I think that is very silly. Uh, you imagine me writing an email to Chomsky saying, Dear Noam, here I, I can finally oblige. I have a long list with counterexamples. I'm sure you're overjoyed. Please have a look at them. And then Chomsky replying back, oh, that's wonderful. I've never really believed in my own theory. Uh, Thank you for these counterexamples. They are absolutely devastating, so we can start anew. That would be an impossible email exchange, and I think it is totally unsincere or insincere on Chomsky's part to say things like that. Still, we must be open to counterexamples. If that's the way it is, it's like... You know, the tax office. Um, if you have to pay, you have to pay. That's it. It's interesting you, you say that because this, is, this sort of anticipates the question I was going to ask you about chapter five, uh, where you five. present. Test that, yes. You know, test that, the facts that are potentially problematic for theories, yes. um, which in some cases are quite long established or long noted facts. And I was going to ask whether you felt that theorists had shied away from the real problems in some sense. Uh, Yes, yes. Um, 
Yes, I'm convinced of that. Um, if you look for arguments to show that language is not a simple matter, but is very complex, and if you want to show that we haven't um, gauged the full, complexity, the full complexity of language by a long shot uh, at the moment, not yet, then uh, you have to look around for cases that are surprising and so far unexplained. And here, linguistic schools have been remiss. Many schools of linguistics work with the notion of language that is oversimplified. They don't look at difficult cases. They don't observe. They think that um, uh, all sentences are of the type like um, Harry hit the ball or the ball was hit by Harry. But language is quite a bit more complicated than that. Simplified views of language that are the basis for the study of language um, I call Mickey Mouse linguistics because you have a Mickey Mouse picture of what language actually is. So what you should do is look for cases that have so far not found an explanation. Now, the universalists, uh, in particular the Chomskyan school, they have been trying to do that. But by the fact that they that they have a rather restricted view of language. They only look at syntax. So they try to formulate syntactic universals, formal syntactic universals. And since the theory of language, a theory of grammar, is, in my view, totally mistaken, they have been rather unsuccessful in this respect. What you also can do, but they don't do, they don't do that, but that's what I do in Chapter 5, is look at possible interpretations of sentences and see if that uh, gives new insights or at least shows that language is difficult. So I give a list of examples, individual examples, mostly taken from English in that chapter, and they're all to do with possible interpretations, possible meanings of sentences. Let me give one example. I don't remember if that's in the book, but it certainly is an example. Uh, it's an example that I caught on the radio back in 1970 when I was in Australia after a football match that had been forced upon me because I don't want to do sports. And um, I was uh, flaked out in the back of a Volkswagen listening to the radio whose loudspeaker speaker was close to my ear. And suddenly I heard the sentence, Alcoholics are getting younger. So I was immediately awake and started thinking about that. That sentence is ambiguous in a very funny way. The intended reading, the intended interpretation, of course, was that um, a recent report had shown that the uh, average age of alcoholics was going down. But another reading is absurd but present. Because alcoholics are not getting younger, they're getting older, like everybody else. And um, how do you account for that? How do you describe the difference? Um, in order to describe that difference, already you need abstract formulas. You, otherwise, you cannot, you cannot even analyze the difference. And then, how does that difference fit 
into a general description of the language. Moreover, there is the fact, which when you think of it is a surprising fact, that even speakers of English who, whose competence is very low, even very poor speakers of English, immediately grasp the difference. And that is remarkable. And have they learned this difference through explicit teaching? No, because I don't know of anybody who is aware of that difference and teaches little children that there is that difference. So that's one example. Another example is something which occurs very frequently in all sorts of texts is this. Consider these two sentences. The first Americans crossed the Bering Strait some 150,000 years ago. The other sentence is, the first Americans landed on the moon in 1969. Now, the first Americans meant in the first sentence, in a sort of absolute sense, they are very different people from the first Americans who landed on the moon in 69. And in fact, you cannot conjoin those two sentences with and. You cannot say the first Americans crossed the Bering Strait 150 years, 1,000 years ago and landed on the moon in 19... That's false. And nor can you say, and they landed on the moon. That's also false. So there are consequences to be drawn from these observations. And these consequences are non-trivial, and they have to do with the machinery of language. And in order to account for this, you are forced to adopt abstract formalisms. Otherwise, you won't get anywhere. A third example, uh, which I often use, this is um, taken from real life. Um, a father is walking in town with his little boy, who is about nine, year old, nine years old. Um, the boy is crying. The father reproaches the boy for crying and says, well-educated boys don't cry. And then the boy quips back and said, I didn't educate me. Um, which um, which is a very good reply. So he puts the, the guilt back to his father, who says that well-educated boys don't cry, and who educated him, his father. Now, this is a very remarkable observation, because everybody always believes that if you have an object term in a sentence which is co-referential with the subject, then the object term is a reflexive pronoun. But if the boy had said, I didn't educate myself, then that would have been totally inappropriate. It would have meant, I am not a self-educator, but that's not what the conversation was about. So why is when you put this heavy contrastive accent on the subject pronoun I, why does that allow for non-reflexivization of the me? See, with a concomitant semantic difference. If you want to describe that difference, then you need abstract formulas, and you see that language is complex, more complex than you thought. So I can go on for another half hour quoting examples like that, but I won't do that. I think you, you get the gist. I would like to add 
that when I was still, when I was young and still teaching students, I used to tell them, look, I said, language is always more complex than you think recursively. So when you think you've got language in the back, don't think that because it will turn out to be more complex than what you think you've got in your back. Does that make sense? Yes, indeed. I think those are some very interesting examples. Um, I wondered, is it fair to say that those, that kind of example has been strategically ignored in more syntax-oriented approaches? Um, that would imply that the non-observance of these of facts of this nature has been intentional. Um, I don't think I can do that. I don't think I can say that. But I think people have been blind to this sort of observation. It takes a certain training. You have to be somehow wicked, uh, evil as a linguist to spot those cases. Now, I have a lifelong training in doing that. Um, as, uh, linguistically, I'm a very wicked person. So I pick these things up. But most people don't. They just carry on because they're not interested in the language. They're interested in what they're talking about. So, no, I don't think this has been intentional. But as a professional linguist, I think it should be pointed out that such examples, such cases exist all over the place. It just takes a trained linguistic ear or eye to spot them. Yes, I think there's a there's a special art to the formulation of counterexamples. It's maybe something that's more um more appreciated in the realm of mathematics than than by yeah. linguists for one reason or another. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, turning, I want to mention chapter seven because in chapter seven you you lay out an argument against the usefulness of the Gricean maxims. Um, which I would be tempted to object to, but I think it rather depends here what you what you want to do with them or what uh, explanatory value they're supposed to have and where in the system. Um, could you say a bit more about the scope of your um, objection? Yes. Um, yes. Okay. That's a tall order. Um, I don't object to the Gracian maxims per se. I think they describe... Uh, much of linguistic reality quite adequately, although people sometimes sin against them. I think the, my objection to Gracian principles is that their explanatory value has been overestimated. They don't nearly explain what they aim at explaining. And they have been um, appropriated by pragmatists and um, anthropological linguists in order to get around uh, all sorts of difficulties in the study of language. I think that is escapism. And I've always thought that right from the beginning, when I first set eyes on what Grice had written, I, uh, I objected. And it's been part of my research program of the last 40 years or so to try and show why the Gricean principles uh, unsatisfactory as an explanation of facts of language. That was a very difficult task. I've recently published, together with a co-author, Danny Jaspers from Brussels, I've published an article in language, that was last year, on uh, logico-cognitive structure in the lexicon. 
And I do have an argument there against the Gracian principles. Um, the fact is that phenomena that are meant to be covered by those principles turn out to be much larger in language when you look about a little bit more carefully. You see that, um, in particular, the discrepancies between logic, standard logic, and language um, are much more uh, widespread in language than has so far been observed. And when you look at the cases that have not so far been observed, but show the same kind of discrepancy, then you see that the Gracian principles are ad hoc and don't apply to them. I think that is an important area of um, argument against the Gracian principles. The facts are much bigger than have been observed. If you look at the bigger facts, you see that the Gracian principles fall short and that more profound principles to do with the makeup of the human mind um, have to be called in. The thesis defended in that article is that the logic that humans operate with is not the logic that you find in textbooks. Um, humans have, in our view, a sound logic, but it's different. It's characterized by the fact that the um, universe of discourse, the domain within which the logic is considered valid, is systematically restricted during uh, the building up of a context, but also uh, during the selection, as a result of the selection of certain lexical items, so that in all those cases, the, the scope of the negation has a restricted universe. If you say of somebody, no, of something that he is not married, you think that he is either a bachelor or a spinster. But it can also be, it can also be um, an oak tree in the field. An oak tree in the field is not married, but is not either a bachelor or a spinster. So if you choose the subject to be an adult human being, then that restricts the universe of discourse, and that restricts the uh, domain um, in which the negation selects its complement. Now, that is only a small start, but... I've worked on the logic, the natural logic of language for the past 15 years, and I've come up with surprising results. And I think they have a much stronger potential um, in explaining um, the facts that Gracian maxims are meant to explain. Uh, and that is what I want to propose now. So I have now started publishing on that a little more uh, consistently and a little more frequently because after these all these years that I've worked on that, the theory, I think, has become so substantive and so robust that I can come up with results. And uh, beginnings of those results you find in the book we are discussing. But this is still very much underway. So it's part, indeed, part of my program to eliminate Gracian maxims. Um, nothing against Grace, nothing against the maxims, 
that they don't explain what they aim at explaining. But it's a difficult topic. Yes, indeed, and I uh, look forward to reading more on it. Um, I wondered, just from a sort of from a pragmatic perspective, um, how you would delimit linguistics, if that's a sensible question, um, particularly in the in the light of your remark on page three hundred and seven that grammar is in the service of meaning. Where do you draw the line, if you if you will, between what is what is linguistics and what belongs elsewhere? Right. Grammar is in the service of meaning. My overall view of grammar is that grammar, a grammar of a language is a mediating mechanism which is inaccessible to introspection. You cannot look into your own mind and look at your grammar. It's hidden behind iron doors and for a very good reason, because you would be raving mad within two seconds if you had to consult your grammar explicitly every moment you're speaking. But the grammar of a language is a mechanism that transforms well-structured thoughts prepared for expression into sound. So the grammar is a transformational mechanism converting thoughts, propositional thoughts under a speech act operator into a perceptible form of writing, usually speaking, a sound, and sometimes gesture. So that is the grammar of a language, and uh, it's just mediating. And this is very much what um, a group of angry young linguists in the 60s uh, were proposing. I was one of them. Macaulay was the leader. Jim Macaulay was the leader. It's called generative semantics, and it came forth from what was then generative grammar. Chomsky himself, in 1964-65, went along until he saw that um, most students went to listen to Macaulay and the other angry young linguists, and then he he made a fault fuss and about turn and um, tried to destroy that uh, that movement, uh, but the the central thought is what I still hold is that the there is an underlying structure to each sentence of a language, and that underlying structure represents the meaning in some codified form. And what we have to do is find out what that form looks like and how a grammar transforms it into surface structure. That is what I still believe. And I have I did not go along with Chomsky. Chomsky says no. Um, the, um, the way a sentence comes about is you first select a handful, you grab a handful of lexical items, you see if you could make a sentence of that, and then you can see uh, what that sentence means. I think that is uh, absurd. Um, that's totally absurd. That's not how grammar works. That's not how we speak. We have thoughts and we convert them into sound when we speak. Um, and that's that's what I have trying to realize in all my life. In 96, I wrote a book, Semantic Syntax, where I proposed an explicit formal theory of how uh, assumed input structures, semantic structures are transformed into well-formed surface structure, 
structures of a number of languages, including English, French, German, Dutch, and a bit of Turkish. Um, and I think that is what language is. And in that sense, grammar is in the service of meaning. Grammar only needs to convert meanings or meaning representations into perceptible form. Otherwise, we can't have language. And that, to me, seems to be a fairly normal and acceptable statement. Unfortunately, linguistic theory on the Chomsky side has been led astray in putting far too much emphasis on syntax as an autonomous thing, which I think is totally unrealistic. So, yes, grammatica and chila significationis. Uh, grammar is the servant of meaning. We're um, running out of time here, so I would like to ask, in conclusion, what topics, you mentioned natural logic, the programme of research on natural logic that you're unfolding. Are there any other topics that are, that are particularly animating your research interest at the moment that you would like to look into? There is quite a bit of literature on the natural logic of language, but that literature only deals with syllogisms. So um, all humans are mortal, uh, all Englishmen are humans, therefore all Englishmen are mortal. That's a syllogism. Um, go, going back to Aristotle, uh, who was the first to develop a theory of syllogisms. But before the syllogism, uh, Aristotle had developed predicate logic, the logic of quantifiers. So what is the analysis of a sentence like all humans are mortal and what follows from it? For Aristotle, it follows that some humans are mortal. In modern logic, mathematical logic, that no longer follows. And my work in the logic of language concentrates not on the theory of syllogisms, which is too far ahead for me, but on, on predicate logic. What is it? What is the logical system? What, is, what are the logical foundations underlying Aristotle's system? Is Aristotle's system actually wrong? which is what was maintained by Bertrand Russell at the beginning of the 20th century, who said that if you want to learn logic from Aristotle, it's like wanting to learn physics from Aristotle nowadays. And he was totally dismissive of Aristotle. I'm not. I think Aristotle had some very profound insights, and his logic is perfectly sound, provided you take a few steps. And so my work, of the past 15 years on um, the natural logic of language has been restricted to predicate logic. And that's what I'm working in, and that's where I have found some very interesting things. Also historically, because uh, during the Middle Ages, Aristotle was systematically misinterpreted um, in a way that made, in, in fact made his system faulty. Um, Russell didn't know that, and he thought that the medieval system was the Aristotelian system, but it wasn't. So I sorted all that out, and I found that Abelard, who lived from 1079 till 1142, a French philosopher, 
Uh, yes, I know his um, years because I have really amassed myself into that. And Abelard found the mistake in the tradition and reconstructed the original Aristotle. And that is logically sound. So there are many, many aspects to that. And it's, it's an area worth, worth exploring. It's very rich and it contains an enormous number of treasures to be unearthed. <laughs> well, again, I very much look forward to, to seeing what, uh, what can be discovered in that line. And, um, thank you for giving us so many um, thought-provoking topics to contemplate in this book. Um, for now, let me say, Peter Suren, thank you very much for your time. Well, thank you very much. It was very pleasant talking to you, Chris. I hope this has been useful. I've been talking to Peter Suren about From Wolf to Montague, Explorations in the Theory of Language. This is Chris Cummins from New Books and Language saying thank you for listening.